All right, welcome back to episode 103 of the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. Tonight, we are with Dr. Mark George from the Isle of School of Theology, professor of Bible and Ancient Systems of Thought. Good to have you, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here. Alongside, we got Jesse and Rob in the house. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? There you go. Doing all right. And uh, some cool news. We have a Longmont chapter. We were just talking about that before we pressed record. And it's Longmont is the northern part of Denver, Boulder, it's kind of in Wyoming, I guess. So anything above seventy, is not. Anything above no. 70 for me feels like Wyoming. I'm like, oh, we got to drive to Stapleton, you know, Broomfield. Sorry, for, Janelle. For those outside of Colorado, this is a maybe 40-minute drive, 35, 40-minute drive. But they're starting a chapter in a few weeks, so shout out to them. Also, Tally, Tallahassee Brew Theology, they're starting this week. So by the time cool. you actually are listening to this, they will have had their first meeting. So Piper out in, yeah, Tallahassee. So this is a cool thing, Mark. So I don't know if you know this. So Piper introduced me to Pam. Oh. So those who don't know, Pam and Mark are married. We won't we get are. into yeah, we won't get into your marriage, but they're both professors of ILF. So this all is connected. So Piper, thanks out in Tallahassee. Yeah, thank you. If it weren't for you, then yeah, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. So now I think we have ten. This was ten, the magic number ten chapters. That's a biblical number. So if you want to learn more about being a chapter, go to brewtheology.org and there's all the information there. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Someone that underscore drives me nuts because I'm OCD. But if whoever has Brew Theology out there, if you're listening, just bring it back. Bring it back to me. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> this would make life simpler. <laughs> uh, My okay. kingdom for an underscore. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, the underscore drives me nuts that we yeah. have to say Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Uh, and then last but not least for announcements, we have the open and relational theology extravaganza coming up November 16th, three hours with seven theologians giving about 15 minute talks. And it's going to be a lot of fun. The back room at blue moon rhino. Cool. We have one Isle of professor to join us, Jason Whitehead. Oh, good. Yeah. So he'll good, be there. Great. All right. Well, uh, Mark, so we're starting with you. We're going to get down to your, the roots of who you are and why you're here. But uh, often the question that we ask around our circles at the table are, what is your religious background heritage label? And I know that's tough for some people, and it seems to be like a, this continuous theme that we get. So, And I think you and I may have a similar story. And then how would you identify yourself theologically today? And you can talk about that shift as long as you'd like or as short as you'd like. Okay. Uh, so, hi, everyone. Uh, I grew up in um, religiously in a a conservative Christian home. Uh, grew up in a church that was not a denominational affiliated church. Um, I think as I went to seminary and learned things, I would say the roots of it were probably Presbyterian and Congregationalist. Um, actually, my family was at a Presbyterian church in the um, 60s before the whole Angela Davis thing, and then that sort of drove them out. I was super active in church uh, all through school. Uh, when I got to the University of Washington, where I did my undergraduate work, I uh, joined the local Presbyterian church there, which had a huge, and it still has a huge campus ministry outreach. Uh, it was run by, or the, the pastor in charge of that at the time was a guy named Steve Hayner, um, who went on to InterVarsity and then uh, Columbia Theological Seminary and in uh, Decatur, and unfortunately died a few years ago. Super talented guy. Um, so, that experience, uh, I think partly because Steve was getting his doctorate in Old Testament at the time through St. Andrew, and uh, his way of handling biblical materials was really interesting to me. Um, it was, a, it was a, still a fairly uh, theologically conservative church. I, I was sort of on a trajectory out of that, but it would made a good step for me. But to see somebody uh, tell stories and unpack them and think them through and allow them to be theologically complex was really great. Um, and he, he, I, I always respected Steve for the complexity of his thought. He wouldn't let simple trite answers be what he offered to the group. After seminary, I worked for a bit, or after, uh, after university, I worked for a bit, and then I decided to go on to seminary to um, either become uh, either to study theology or to study Bible. And uh, that was settled for me in seminary when I, I didn't do so well in a theology class, but I had, did pretty well in a Bible class. Uh, I have an econ and English lit background, and I should have realized that having a text in front of me 
to work with would have been an easier process. But I went to New Jersey, Princeton Theological Seminary, did an MDiv there, stayed to do a, a PhD. And fortunately, uh, after that, I was uh, hired at ILF and able to come to Denver, uh, where I've been ever since. I've been here over 20 years now. Uh, teaching's a really good gig. I feel super grateful for where I where I am with all of that stuff right now. Um, not the least of which being because I met uh, Pam and and uh, that's worked out pretty well. Um, <laughs> I would have loved to have been though, like at your early dinner tables during the holidays. That would have been really interesting. Early Pam and mine, or yeah. early growing up? No, you and Pam. Yeah, it's, it's not a, so interesting. You no, know, people it think sound, it sounds I, really cool. This says I know people, and people think so. For those of you who don't know, Pam Eisenbaum is Jewish, and she's a professor of uh, New Testament and early early Christian origins. And when I first met her father, before we got together, uh, he grew up Jewish, and and he looked at me and he had this puzzled look after doing sort of Bible trivia with me um, <laughs> because he knew I was a scholar and he'd grown up in an Orthodox home and he'd gone to yeshiva. And, and for him, having a Bible scholar walk into the room was great because for all of his life, he'd had these Bible questions that were just bugging him. And so one of his first questions to me is like, who are the Nephilim? And I sort of gulped. <laughs> thinking, this is really going to be sad if all this education is not worth anything when I get a question. And then he said, is Michael Jordan one of the Nephilim? And I was like, oh, thank you, God. Because <laughs> then I knew what he was talking about. He was talking about, uh, what's it, Genesis 6 and the sons of God coming to earth because the, the uh, human women are so beautiful and they have children and they're the giants. He's like, I don't know. What do you think about the Nephilim? I can't explain that story. Uh, that got me through. <laughs> um, my colleague got the red heifer uh, question, my, my colleague in Old Testament Hebrew Bible at Aleph, uh, which is a harder question, I think. <laughs> you explain the, the red heifer. But no, the dinner, I mean, dinner conversations are really not that exciting. It's the non-dinner conversations that are more interesting, uh, okay. right? When we come home and talk about teaching or, you know, today I've been writing, so we get a chance to talk about it and bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, well, so then you obviously fell in love with the Bible throughout your journey of college and then yeah. seminary and whatnot. Why the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures over the New Testament as somebody who grew up as a Christian? Uh, well, I have sort of the snarky answer and I have a more serious answer. The snarky answer is because the stories are just better. Um, okay, so you can True. walk on the water, but like, you know, then what? Uh, Moses at least parts the water and lets, according to the Exodus, 600,000 men and women and children and animals go through. I mean, for parlor tricks, that's a little better parlor <laughs> trick. No disrespect to Jesus. Um, so I think the part of the reason was, like I said, I was an English major, and stories are powerful. And the stories, the more I spent time both learning the language and gaining the skills that I needed in order to get my PhD, the more the stories unfolded for me. Um, they're, they're just, the language has nuances and subtleties in it that are not easy. I think also for me, having grown up in a conservative, practically biblicist church, yeah, I got a lot of New Testament. I got a lot of Old Testament too, but not the Old Testament I was reading in, in seminary. Um, and not the Old Testament the way Steve Hainer had taught it to me. So uh, it was just a richer set of texts. There was more, more interesting stuff going on there. there was, and I think because I had grown up in this Christian home and community and had taken it so seriously, there was more room interpretively for me to read Old Testament materials than there was in the New Testament. Um, and I, when I was in uh, my graduate work, I, I also found uh, my advisor was somebody who um, just I found intriguing and interesting. And so, uh, and he happens also to be Old Testament. And I was going and thinking about Old Testament. Um, the New Testament work just didn't interest me as much. And I think some of that is, like I say, I just, there wasn't as much room interpretively to work with. And would you say that, like studying the Hebrew scriptures, understanding through the Eastern Hebraic eyes affected you more positively to read the New Testament in a way that which most Christians are unaware of because of the lack of Hebraic understanding of the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures? Yeah. 
to be honest, I have so much to read in Old Testament. I don't spend a lot of time reading the New Testament, and partly that's because I live with a New Testament scholar. So it's like she reads I, it for I, you. I, I, she reads it for me. Um, uh, so um, I still have trouble reading New Testament in particular without that heritage of uh, conservative evangelical biblicist knowledge coming through. And I realize that's not less to do with the text than with the history of interpretation. So I read with Augustine next to me and Thomas Aquinas and, and, and Dwight D. Moody and um, Schofield. I mean, I, you know, these dispensationalists, uh, these other folks that... Hard to get out of your head. It, it really is. And <clears throat> so I'll say... And this is sort of snarky. I'll say, you know, hi, I'm Mark. I'm a recovering evangelical. Um, and, and yet there's truth to that because I don't, that's not where I am theologically, but it's so imprinted on the ways that I think about some of these texts, it's hard for me to step away from them. So I have less of that with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Bible. Um, and the more I read those texts, um, and I try to convince my students of this, that by really having a go at the text, I have no fear that anything I'm going to say, do, teach about the Bible is going to damage the Bible. Um, that's just not going to happen. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. There's not enough space in the world for me to do that. Um, I think that totally misses the point. But I think that the freedom we have with the text, if we will give ourselves that. So we can ask pretty much any question, go at it in any way, just being who we are, um, actually can have the effect of deepening one's faith. Yeah, that's, that's good. So tonight we are going to talk about your argument cool. for the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, that's the Old Testament. The Tanakh, you can give it all kinds of names if you want, but tonight we'll just say Old Testament for the sake of our listeners. People are pretty much aware of that. And uh, <laughs> let's start with your proposition here, your words. Cool. From the beginning, here we go. The time has come to retire the widespread notion that God is love. It's time instead to embrace what the ancient Israelite writers knew so well, that God is a lot of things, love being only one of them. So your argument here doesn't, it doesn't discount love. It just implies that in our culture that we've, maybe idolized love to the expense of missing out on God's other qualities. So why, first off, why do you think Western Christianity predominantly, okay, we're going to, we're going to generalize here, upholds this God is love view this way. So I think there are lots of reasons. Um, I mean, I think that there's a, a way Jesus is a, a model of, a, for the most part, or what we talk about are the, is sort of the accepting Jesus, one the, the one who heals the sick and worries about the poor and doesn't hang out with the power brokers. Uh, on the contrary, he's killed by the power brokers because if anything, he's a threat to them. So I get that. And I, I also think that um, the, the message that God is love is a very comforting message, right? I mean, it is biblical. What's it? Second John... Uh, can't remember which uh, of of the uh, smaller writings it is about you know says God is love. Okay, so that's great, and I think that's very comforting. It's it, it you know you may not experience love any other way, but if somebody can convince you that God loves you, well, like that works. Um, so I understand that, and I I have found solace and comfort in that myself over the years. The more I read the the. Bible, I'll just refer to it as the Bible, um, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Old Testament. Um, Israel doesn't discount that. Israel knows that, that it really wasn't anything they did. I mean, they'll say, it says in, the, in uh, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the, uh, the Pentateuch, that there's no reason why God chose you, Israel. Uh, there's, there's nothing that you did that merited this. God just chose you. Um, if that's not grace, I don't know what is. And, and, and the writers will speak over and over about how God loves them. But they also, that's not the only message they have. And for me, as I visit churches and I talk with people and I talk with my students, it seems to me that we're trying to fit everything we think about God into this like jello mold of, well, but God loves me. And, and there's a long, strong tradition uh, of that. The book of Job carries through some of that. Uh, it's there in the Bible. Um, 
it's all through history of, well, you really, you don't have anything to say to God because, uh, you know, God's God and, and what you need to know is God loves you. And so just deal with that. Um, but the, the more time I spend in these writings, the less convinced I am of that. Israel, I think in some ways, because Israel knew they'd been chosen, they could call God to account. And they just wouldn't let God get away with things. Some people would say, yeah, but you kind of have to let God get away with things because God's God, right? Or because you've sinned or, or, you know, sort of the Adam and Eve story and Augustine and all of that. They're not thinking about Augustine, but um, that piece is there. <clears throat> and so there is that response. You just take whatever God dishes out to you because ultimately God loves you. And then there are plenty of other people who are like, oh, hell no. That's not going to work. And for me, that, now that, if we can get to that, then we're starting to talk about faith. Then we're talk, starting to talk about having a real relationship with God. Um, it's not just serve it up and I'll eat it. Um, it's, no, 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 there's a relationship here. Okay, so there was somebody at the brewery last week, not going to mention names here, and she was not interested in this proposition. Right. You know, and basically talking about certain kinds of churches reconciling churches that are all about God's love. And you, you, know, you had said that mainline denominations, which would be Presbyterians, Methodists, and you know Lutherans and whatnot, are dying, which factually they are. And part of the reason you would say is because they just have the God is, is love part and they don't deal with the rest of God's qualities. Is this yeah. right? Yeah. And she didn't like that. No, that's no. okay. Yeah. It was, okay, go ahead. Sorry, well, Rob, that's something. So that's something I'm really interested, though, in... Could you talk a little bit about, I know that is a huge topic, but can you talk a little bit about why, um, why you feel that that is, is contributing to this decline in mainline um, Christian denominations? Because I'm sure it's something you've spent time thinking about, and I'd love to know in your words a little bit more about that, um, that hypothesis. Yeah. So uh, this is anecdotal. I'm not a I'm not a sociologist. I don't have quantitative data on this, other than I do have quantitative data on on these denominations losing members, right, left and right. We declare you qualified to talk <clears throat> okay. about this in this podcast. So, <laughs> so so often, in fact, I I really can't find I can't think of a time in my adult life where I've gone into a a, a church. By far and away, these are Protestant churches where somebody can stand up in the pulpit and say, you know, we got totally screwed over by God this week. Doesn't it feel like that to you? I mean, we just like, the hurricane came and has flattened everything around us. And I, let, let, let's go stop. Let's just stop the service and go out there and, and just curse at God and, and get that off our chests. Because that's really what God deserves for this, right? We 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 have helped the poor, we um, have helped the homeless, we have helped the widow and the orphan. That's central to who we are and and what our mission is. And we got totally screwed. I mean, our church building got flattened. Five different members were killed. Uh, lots of people don't have their their houses or their jobs or whatever, right? And we can come in and say, well, but God loves us, so this will work out. Yes, that's a theological option. It doesn't feel very satisfying for me in those moments. I think it denies the reality, because it denies the reality of the experiences that people are going through, right? What it says is, you're the problem as the parishioner if you don't come here and feel like, well, but God loves me anyway. And I'm sorry, that's really effed up. In my view, that's just wrong. It's just wrong-headed, right? I want to say, go read Job. Job did nothing wrong. God was like just playing with him. Oh, Job is so pious. He loves me so much. He's my number one fan. And and the adversary, Ha-Satan, we tend to solidify that in Satan, but, but in the Hebrew, it's, it's this uh, role player. It's like the prosecuting attorney says, yeah, only because you've made everything good for him. Um, I think there are other texts too in the Psalms um, where, and, and other places in the Bible where people are like, this is messed up. 
And, and if you kill me, <laughs> if you kill me and I die, guess what? I can't praise you. And so how does that help you? It doesn't help me. It doesn't help you. Um, there's an honesty in it that, that I think is lacking, right? Because it's, it's not forcing individuals to feel somehow inadequate because they haven't, they don't have the proper love for God because that's really the only option they have. Yeah, this, uh, first of all, thank you for expanding on it a little bit. And this is something that I spoke with you at, after the talk last week right. that really resonated right. with me. Right. Um, relating to the richness, the more rich experience of God right. being, uh, you know, use the visual of, you know, what if I said the theological perspective of God is love is as thin as this substitute sugar yes, packet. Right. And your, in your right. proposition was God is both love and much, 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 much more rich experience. And that resonated with me a lot. And, you know, I I've heard stories on other podcasts and these are anecdotes, same, same setup, you know, that you had discussed of people turning away from, from God, you know, the Judeo Christian God, because the experience of the Judeo Christian faith was not rich enough for, for their uh, human experience, you know, for the human experience and the range of the richness of human emotion and experience, which is why that, point that you um, discussed really resonated. So didn't mean to jump in there, but I was interested in hearing more um, uh, from Dr. George about just the reflection on that in general. Yeah. At any point, anybody can jump in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and Mark's fine too. You don't have to be formal. Uh, um. there, there is something that we didn't define last week and we have time to do that now. Why not? It's love. It's love. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we're getting ambitious. There we go. Why not? I mean, the, the English you word love, the first. English word love, you know, we, we use it a lot. I love, I'm going to do my anchor man. I love lamp, you know, um, I love floor. I love ceiling. I love, yeah, whatever we love. This is, if you don't know the movie, that's going to sound really dumb. Anchor man. There you go, everybody. But you know, everything from, I love my, you know, my beer to, I love the walk I took with my wife to, I love watching the Spurs play. And yet in the Hebrew, and you know this, I mean, you're, you're a scholar. So there are at least three words that we know that are used throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And so you have this doed love, this more of a beloved intimate that you see, right. you know, and right. then you have this raya, friendship, uh, trustworthy friend, bro love. I call that brosif love, the raya. And then there's <laughs> that, the ahava, which is that more active, uh, affectionate. It's almost like, you know, what you see in a marriage. Um, so these are th- just yeah, three. And then, and then you've got, what'd you say? Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> it depends on the marriage. I think, well, I but, think, but, I, yeah. And I think that's probably, I think you're probably close. You'd be closer yeah. to Dodi, right? Or my, my beloved, that that's a yeah. different quality than Ahav has a, a, so I spent my afternoon working on Deuteronomy. Ahav is in Deuteronomy a lot. Uh, it's the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew term for love. It's the first term that comes to mind for me for uh, the how how you say love in Hebrew, but it has a contractual notion to it. So you're you're giving of oneself in the with the condition that that person will give back. Yeah, like uh, when you sign a contract to buy your house. Yeah, that way. But that's so stale. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> That's that's a that's a transactional financial thing. So yeah, I, I, and the relationship I, with God is what I would say. So okay, yeah, here we go. The so the more familial. So I have expectations of everybody in my household, and, and they have expectations of me. Sure, and that's just what you do as a family. Sure. And, and communities, you're not God's son. Communities do this as well. You're not you're not God's child. <laughs> and if you are, what if God's an abuser? Is is God doing the abusing? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Deuteronomy. Yeah. Again, it's on my mind. You're going to hear a lot of Deuteronomy because it's on my mind a lot right now. But but Deuteronomy has this. Um, Deuteronomy is a real law and order book. But at the end, when the curses come, it's like everybody knows the curses are coming. That God's saying this: you're you're gonna screw up, and I'm gonna beat the crap out of you. And I'm going to let you suffer for a long time. And then when a few of you are still around, I'll come and gather you and you'll, you'll love me again. 
All right. I, and I and I hear this. I by the way, I this, you're gonna, you're going to like this and the rest of you may think I'm nerdy. <laughs> Back in the day, Lauren was like, "Thank God he doesn't do this anymore." My wife, <laughs> now I, I would read the uh was it the, the parsha, so the whole uh-huh. thing every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I would get the, the, the Torah every week and so I would be in bed reading Leviticus out loud. Absolutely. And, I mean, the whole thing. I love it. And, yeah, but so and, and maybe this is my western side coming out. So because I've spent a lot of time in the Torah, I I see this as if you do these things, these are natural consequences that are going to happen versus God is punishing me. And that, that could be, again, my, my, my romantic side, my yearning for not wanting it to be this deity, more of like, no, God's saying, here's what's going to happen if you live out this way. If you live, live a life according to curses, you'll be cursed. Live a life according to blessings, you'll be blessed. Is, yeah, is, so is, my is that argument, too Western for me? Argument, yeah, for me. My argument would be this. That God is patient and forgiving, but but it's sort of like uh, I, I had a year of chemistry in my undergraduate course and learning about uh, titration, right, and whatnot. And you can add a certain amount of something and then one more drop and suddenly the liquid goes blue or whatever color it would go, right? It's precipitating to, to something else. And it's sort of like that with God. The problem is you just don't know when that's going to happen. God could be a scorpion. It could happen automat- automatically, or it could take a really long time. Um, it's hard to predict God. So God hides God's self from Israel. This happens. Yeah, or God that's, takes a vacation or something. That's what you, yeah, you call it the other yeah. night of vacation. And yet, would you do that to your own child? Do some parents ever, ever have to? So, uh, I think some parents do. So then do they do that out of love or because they're just pissed off? Depends on the parent. I know. Or a whole bunch of other reasons, right? Yeah. They just lose interest. They, they, you know, are just irresponsible. Yeah. They get busy with other kinds of things. Um, I, I guess my, my deeper question with all this, because I have, I, have, I have my point within my question, we all do, is have we watered down love in the English Western world? Whereas if, if there's a more rich understanding of love in the Bible, I'm okay with these things happening with a dynamic God that's not static. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that we've watered it down. I think we, if anything, we've sweetened it up, right? That love can be a lot of things. That, that this ahav love, for example, uh, that, that if there's a contract between God and Israel, and I say that there is, right? That when they go to Sinai and they, they receive uh, the Ten Commandments and the other instructions of the Torah from God, that's a contract, um, it's, it's a, it's a, in effect, a written agreement. And the people say, okay, we can live by this. He said the other night, uh, it's a set of operating rules, right? This is what a contract does. You do this, I'll do that. I'll do that, this, you do that, right? So it goes back and forth. I think, I think because we talk about religion, people get really uncomfortable with the notion this is transactional. At one level it is, but, uh, so is say, uh, a relationship, try not to think about it that way necessarily, but it can be, right? Um, uh, I went through a divorce. Sorry, there's a whole heck of a lot of legal paperwork and everything else built into that agreement. Um, so, I think, I think in, uh, in my experience of listening in churches and interacting with people and my own background in this, love is pretty much an emotional state of being. And I think these other ways of understanding love are not so emotionally driven. Um, And I think that's the disturbing piece, but I think that's a piece that's been lost in the conversation. Yeah, I would would agree with you. So could, could we broaden the term love? Could that be helpful at least for churches to do that? As opposed to uh, sure, as opposed why? To, what, what's the gain? Like, well, the gain goes back to this could be an unconscious thing that just happens when you hear it's like a dog that you know, you, here comes the food. If I hear the word love, like suddenly I will have a relationship with my wife or my kid or my dog or this God if I know this person loves me. If you can uh, use the identifier, this, this, this word love, it helps humans. 
Sure, sure, I get that. But but what happens? Okay, so one of the things I'm really conscious about in reading the Bible, this fascinates me when, when reading the Bible. Where do people identify? If they're going to read the Bible, if they bother, if they think it has value, uh, if you become it becomes authoritative to you in some way. With whom do you identify in a story? Right? Hebrew Bible's got lots of stories in it. They're great stories. They're really, they, 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 they made it into the book because they got told over and over and over again. They're rich, right? They're, they've got lots of ambiguity in them. So I'm always fascinated to know, okay, who, who, with whom do you identify in this story? If the Israelites are doing well in Joshua, in the United States, right? We, we, our, our, our founders talked about the U.S. being the city on the hill, and this is, the, this is the promised land, right? We had all of these identifications with all of the good things with Israel. Never the pieces about, oh, yeah, right, we could be punished, right? It, it's never the, the downside, it's, it, it's never Esau in the story of Jacob and Esau. It's not the one who, who, for a bowl of pottage, because he was hungry, sold his birthright to his brother. We're always with Jacob, because like, he's the one who, ha, 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 you know, he gets what he's, what he's after. And I, I understand that. But what happens if we stop and think about who we're identifying with and why? We identify with Israel, for example, when Israel's on the up, when they get sent into exile, oh, no, 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 we're not that, right? That, that's the morality tale. Why isn't it the reverse? Why isn't the other mora- the morality tale? This could go well for you if you would do these things. Um, I think there's built into the story also a knowledge that this is basically impossible to do. I think in some ways, when Israel goes into the land in Joshua and Judges and starts with a monarchy, there's an, there's, the writers in some ways are saying, all that Torah stuff is like impossible to live out. Saul was trying his darndest to, to live this out. And I find very few people who say, ooh, I want to be King Saul in the story. I want to be David. Um, so for me, that's part of the purchase. That's, that's why this, this matters, is, is we have to think also about where do we identify and, and is there another way to identify with this, right? So in the U.S., I'm aware that as a white man, highly educated, socioeconomically well-off by comparison, right? It's sort of frightening to figure out those numbers and figure out where you are. And I'm just a professor. Um, I have, I, I have oodles of privilege compared to lots of people in this country. Um, and I, I can hear those stories and think about, okay, so maybe the place to identify is not with the one who's loved, but the one who feels like he or she is unloved or they are unloved. Then what happens, right? How is that still love? Um, maybe I need those other categories of who or what God is because they give voice in a religious context, right? In my religious life, in my places of worship, because this too becomes worship, right? That the protest, the agony, the suffering, the complaint, the illness, the, the sickness unto death, citing outside the Bible, uh, right? Has a place. It's validated within the worship life of the community. Now, that gets to, to me, it gets to be a much more interesting worshiping community. Yeah, I, I concur, and I, I even look at the number one reason for people to leave the church and Christianity altogether, and it's not because Christians are hypocrites. That's one they use as an excuse. Yeah, right. It's the theodicy issue. It's the problem yeah. of evil, and then they blame God, and they don't have to do with that. Yeah. So, hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on the depth of a community and the importance of being able to dive into these different characters. I like the way you put that, too how you can see yourself as different, identify as different characters in the Bible. Right. Um, I wouldn't necessarily identify myself as a Christian, but I do understand, and I don't want to overstep my yeah. bounds looking outside into yeah. the community. The thing about God is love is that it's like universally acceptable. It's something that you can apply to all types of struggles that you could face on like a very surface level. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, you're still left grasping at something, trying to figure out something that might conflict with um, a faith principle that you have, um, 
like in terms of sexuality or things like that. Like I know I'm bringing up a hot topic issue here, but do it. Yeah. Um, go for it. I guess that's, that's the kind of uh, problem I see with, and it's not a problem that I don't think there's a solution for necessarily, but I'm curious what you would say to that. Like there's this sense of God is love is very inviting to lots of different people. But when you have people who are struggling with issues that butt up against, um, you know, text specific texts in this yeah. certain tradition, it's difficult. And how, yeah. how would you, how do you face those type of problems? Yeah. So how do I deal, deal with the homosexuality texts? For example, for example, uh, I deal with it a couple of ways. One is I say, so tell me how many texts there are that deal with this specifically in the Bible. Most people don't know. I would name five. Old and New Testament. Two in the Old Testament. It's really not a major issue, for one. Caring for the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the stranger in your midst, that comes up over and over and over and over again. So if we're going to be people of the book, we're going to be people who are governed by the Bible. As we, as we hear in various uh, corners of U.S. society, how well are we doing that? Um, so that's, that's the first response I have. Can I think, for those, just starting with the Hebrew Bible uh, uh, verses, which are both in Leviticus, um, do I think that they say a man shall not uh, lie with another man as with a woman? Yeah, that's what they say. Do I think that in those texts that that's a problem? Yes, I do. I think, I think that that's a problem. Uh, do I have a nifty exegetical solution for those? No, I don't. I wish I did. I wish they weren't there, but th they're there. I can start with that, right? Um, then I have to start to think about them in context. Can somebody who's going to quote that to me tell me the three verses before and the three verses after each of those verses? Probably not. Um, they're in a sort of hodgepodge of things. Can they tell me about Leviticus? Can they tell me about Leviticus and the Holiness Code and, and uh, the structure of the book, right? So, so I start to think about them. This is where my scholarship and my education really comes in because I contextualize them within a, a, a broader range of things. I think, and I, I come from a family and a tradition where, boy, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong and, and like, that's it. And I'm like, yeah, but it also says in the first chapter that humankind is made in the image of God, male and female, God made them. So which one is it? If we're going to be binary, which one is it? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I think the answer is yes. Um, God's both male and female. So how do we deal with that? Right? Eh, we don't really want to talk about that. How do we deal with, and, and if God's the creator, one of the amazing things about that Genesis 1 story, and there are lots of interesting things about that, what would happen if Genesis 1 showed up at the end of Deuteronomy as Moses is talking about, oh, and by the way, here's our story about how the world came to be. I don't think we'd focus on it as much. If it was in Leviticus, Christians would never <laughs> find it. <laughs> um, so, so ordering in the books... And how the canon got put together highlights things in a way that people don't pay attention to. But what ha if God's created everything, right? And this is an argument that's used sometime in reconciling churches, and I'm totally with them on this, right? If God made everything and, and humankind is made in the image of God, can we just like move on? Because it tells us something about God, it seems to me, in all of our uniqueness and our variation as human beings. We're not really binary. Um. But that's not where we get hung up, because it's too permissive, right? And that's not love. I haven't even gotten to love yet, right? We could talk about it. We could, we could emphasize the God is creator piece. Um, and yeah, sure, God's, God's setting certain guidelines around that, we can say, by the Torah. But still, if, if, and, and God said it was very good, and I think, I think we don't want to deal with that. One of the interesting things here is we talk a lot about love in Protestantism, but we really have a hard time with grace. Amen. Grace is a really difficult problem. And I think maybe love substitutes for that as a way to say we, we, we can be accepted. God accepts us as we are. Um, so I'm sort of rambling here on this, but to come back to the question about how, how it comes up against other things, I like your observation that, you know, it's, 
it's sort of the simple theological claim, the most inclusive theological claim. Um, I, the first thing that went through my mind when you said that was, yeah, because it's pablum. It's easy to digest. And I actually have a complaint about that too. I don't want to discredit the, or get off of the um, sexuality or, yeah. you know, just any, if you talk about diet, like you're not supposed to eat certain things or yeah. wear certain types yeah. of clothing. There's lots yeah. of things that are, yeah. how do you I'm wear? I'm seeing some polyester and cotton in your outfit over there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but another thing is the complexity. You mentioned the complexity earlier on and how you valued um, one of your professors. Um, I can't remember who you're talking about. That, oh, pastor. Yeah. A pastor. Okay. That was, you know, able to look at certain um, pieces of scripture um, in a complex way and actually, you know, kind of lay them out with you, which is interesting. Um, I think that's important, but I also think that there can be great depth in simple on the surface, simple meanings, like yes. uh, something like uh, life is suffering, like Buddhist ideas, yeah. things like that has great yeah. depth to it. It does. Um, and so, I don't know, I kind of have beef with the complexity thing. I, I get myself in that mindset too. Like when you're younger and you're learning these things, you get to different plateaus and you're like, oh, I know everything. I know it now. And then you get to something else. And it's just, the complexity to me doesn't do it for me. Um, uh, I think there's a difference between complexity and depth. And I think... Uh, depth is important, but yeah, not really I, a question, I, but so. that's helpful. I, I think for me, I would equate the two. Complexity okay. means for me depth. It's not just okay. uh, uh, being difficult to be difficult. It's that there are lots of ways to think about these things, and I think that's the depth piece that you're after. Okay, thank you. Yeah, great question. So, part of what I feel like you've described a little bit has been a spacious, a more spacious interpretation of God. Yeah. And we, I, I, I can't help but go back to our, uh, another faculty member at ILIF, um, think tinker yeah. about like spatial and temporal worldview. Now, granted Dr. Tinker's talking about worldview and, not, I mean, we're obviously not, he's not having a conversation about the old Testament right. when he talks about that. Right. But <laughs> it seems to be the, the interpretation you're presenting of God. Well, what you're presenting is more spatial and a little bit less, a little bit more spacious than maybe what we've turned God into in the Western world, which feels very, very up down, very um, hierarchical, but I don't know if that is, I don't know if that, if, I don't know if I'm, I'm um, creating this in my own mind or if this is actually something. I'm not sure what to do with spaciousness. Uh, so here's how I'm interpreting that. Sure. That by spaciousness, you are envisioning God as um, having more depth, right? Ha- having, having, that God can feel, be, think, respond in more ways than just love. And, and love is an emotional thing, uh, and strictly on the emotional level. Because I think love, even in our culture, if you get people thinking about it, they can be deeper, I'll use that term, with their notion of love, right? That love is commitment. Love is is caring for somebody who's ill, uh, the sick and the dying. Love, love is, uh, you know, bringing flowers to somebody you love. Uh, love is that emotion, right? But it, it, it's, it's a whole host of other things as well. Where I find that constricting is that just within that larger notion of love, to say that God gets angry is, you can say, well, I love you, thus I'm angry with you. That's really messed up psychology. Um, so, uh, I love you, so I'm going to break your arm. Right. I mean, I think Israel felt like that. They're like, how does this work? Um, the story, one of the stories I like to tell my students or have them to think about with the, um, biblical accounts of Israel being carried off into exile. Very often I hear people say, well, Israel had it coming. God tried and tried and tried, was gracious, was patient for, you know, bearing of all of this. And eventually God just said, fine, I'm sending you into exile. Okay, that's an answer. 
the the ones that I think about are the people who went to temple and and paid their tithes three times a year. The people who um, felt like they had some sort of of faithfulness to this God, some loyalty. I'll use that term. Faithfulness gets gets into belief, but some some sense of loyalty to this God. They didn't go sacrifice to Baal. They didn't go uh, help the Assyrians. Jeremiah did that with the Babylonians. Um, you know, they 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 were they were loyal to this God, the God that they understood as the God of their people. But they got carted off to, to Babylon. Why? Why? Well, because they're Israelites, and because uh, Nebuchadnezzar could find them. So, is God on like a fifty-one percent scale? If fifty-one percent of you are bad. You know what I'm saying? Well, like, so no, I think is- so. I think that that's a question. That's a great question. It's a very American question. We are so bound up with. I'm just really responsible for myself. If if you get screwed over, tough for you. I'm okay, right? We're watching election results, and I could say as a white male who's highly educated, I'm good. I'm sorry, I don't feel that way, right? I feel, I, and this is another way in which Bible informs me, right? Israel had some of that, but they also were aware that, that as, a, as a community, as a people, right, their fortunes went up and down together. Um, I think that there are people in this country who feel that way, right? And, and they support one party or another because they feel that way. But, but we have throughout that too, this strong individuality sense that I'm really only responsible for myself. I'm going to make or break myself. Um, I know I'm speaking as a white male here, but rugged individualism. Yes. Well, and and we're in the West, right? And I grew up in Seattle. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a virtue uh, in my extended family. Um, and in Colorado, we're the, yeah, we're sure. the hiking, mountain climbing, that's right. rock climbing. Yeah, it is right. pretty hyper-individualized in this yeah. city state, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, you go hiking and, and man, you get in trouble, then, like, figure it out, right? Um, so, I get that. But it's not a 51% thing for Israel. It's an, it's an awareness. That there's this constant back and forth, I think, of it's one and all. It, 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 it's, it's individual and community all at once, constantly. And so for the person who has been loyal to, to this particular God and, and is sitting by the rivers of Babylon, being taunted by the Babylonians to sing us a song of Zion, that totally sucks for them. And, and the truth is, they're probably the ones who knew this was coming and a possibility and trying not to have that happen, whereas the people who really didn't give a rip still didn't give a rip. They're like, well, okay, uh, what can we do here by the rivers of Babylon? Let's sing. Let's do it. Maybe we can make a buck at it or a shekel at it or something. I mean, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Right. So th- this, this comes back to covenant theology in so many ways and how love is about, um, well, love and all the other qualities. Okay. <laughs> it's funny that I, I go back to love. Would that be helpful if we thought more in terms of, of covenant theology, the whole, uh, the people of Israel, the people of, so Christians, the people of Jesus, the, whatever community you're a part of, or as Americans, would this, would this help us, uh, not just theologically, but practically in a world that's clearly, um, well, so tell me what you're thinking yeah. of in terms of covenant theology. What does that mean for you? Uh, for, for me, so God chooses a people. So let's say it's Israel, and then and other other people would say just just for let's grants, just, it's let's Israel. just say let's just yeah. say it's Israel. Just, just yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the reason I mentioned the 51 percent because I'm I'm feeling you when you were talking about the the one person who had been faithful to God didn't sacrifice to Baal didn't uh, you know didn't hurt the orphan or the widow was there every day yeah. giving him bread. Let's say 49 percent of the people did that like is god my question is god and i'm thinking like an american is he on, is on the scale of once you tip over to 50 51 you know then you know you're all screwed because you're all my people and you're all in this together yeah i don't I, think in terms yeah. of percentages okay I mean, this is right yeah. i think i think there's a real unpredictability to this divine being right immense power uh, a god, right? This is this is the category of beings we have, and they like run around and do these things. Only we've got this god, and this god's like a little unpredictable, like a lot unpredictable, right? 
I'm I'm holding nitroglycerin uh, in an earthquake while I'm you know bouncing around on a pothole filled road on a car that has no shocks. I'm trying really hard not to have this blow up, but who knows if I if I make it, it's a miracle. But I'm sort of expecting it's going to blow up. Um, I I think God's unpredictable, right? I think also there's a way in which for Israel. They were, they were not beyond manipulating God as much as they could. Moses does, Abraham does, so why shouldn't anybody else? Um, so, so that there's, uh, uh, yeah, 49%, 51%. Well, and it, uh, it could be 1%. I mean, this is the thing, So if it is 1%, then like, that, that blows big time. Well, yeah, I mean, but it does. Of course it does. does. And to, and of to, course it does. To the point. Sign me up for that guy, right? I want the really hair trigger God. Yeah. No, it sucks, but it's also to the point that was being made a moment ago about, and we talked about this a little before the recording started, right? Like I'm middle class white guy, educated. You know, I'm fine. Well, not really. Like when it comes to the inextricable, let's just use. It's sorry, it's too easy to use. When you talk about the inextricably linked web of humanity, it it barely matters whether, and when we talk about communities, if there's a violation, it doesn't matter if it's 49%. I mean, if you want to carry on with the web visual, you knock off one rung of the web, everything's weakened, you know, right? And like, I, I get we're getting away from the Bible here a little bit, but that also demonstrates a little bit of the, that's where like, I, I also... The percentages thing's weird for me because I'm like, you take our little brew theology community, like one person violates the rules of the community. We got to, you know, there's a problem. And, and that one person could be that much of a dick in sure. a table that it affects. No, let's say there's eight people at this table. Sure. And there's and the maybe five people in that table say, I'm never coming back again because of one night with one dick. Sure. Yeah. It just feels like it doesn't take 49%. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> 